Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we meet with Addie Bracey, a coach and professional trail runner for Nike based in Denver, Colorado. Addie recently published a book titled Mental Training for Ultra Running, and that's where we focus this conversation. We cover a lot of topics from the book, including the importance of finding your why, managing stress response, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, the benefits of self-talk, and way more. Let's get started. Addie Bracey, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We could probably do an entire episode on your running career, and maybe we will in the future, but for today, I want to focus on a book you recently wrote called Mental Training for Ultra Runners. But in case there's anyone that isn't familiar with your story, could you give a little bit of a background on uh, how you got into trail running and how you got into sports psychology? Yeah, um, I would much rather talk about uh, sports psychology than my own running anyway. So this is this is perfect. But um, I've been a lifelong runner. I, I kind of had the traditional running route with um, running in, in high school. And then I ran at the University of North Carolina, ran uh, track and cross country um, and then finished that and was still kind of improving. So um, had a hard time like walking away from the sport. And I did a, probably another 10 years of um track and marathons kind of at a high level, ran some Olympic trials uh, in the marathon and the 10K. Um, But around 2016, I kind of like plateaued and just wasn't getting any faster and was actually kind of getting slower. And at the time, I didn't know a lot about trail running and mountain running. Um, And I kind of just figured my running career was over and like happenstance, I guess, um, was introduced to the sport and did a few mountain races, shorter distance, which at the time were a little easier to swallow than some of the longer stuff I do now. Uh, and had some success, but I think more than anything, just really enjoyed it. So um, since then, I've just been really curious um, about the longer distances, especially. And it's not a coincidence that my interest in sports psychology, that I have an interest in, in sports psychology and 100 mile races. Like I would say, honestly, a lot of my decision to keep competing has to do with my curiosity about the mental side of the sport the longer you go. So it's kind of a, a dual purpose. I still like competing and training, but I also like having like a front row seat. Um, to some of the stuff going on and that you experience um, running races that long. So um, the sports psychology side, I I had been coaching um, at various levels forever. I, I stayed and uh, coached a little bit at my college and my university and thought about college coaching. And long story short, um, felt like I was a pretty good coach, but there was a lot of pretty good coaches. And when I was reflecting on my own career, what I felt like I was lacking support and guidance in was kind of dealing with the mental and emotional side of competing, whether it's at a high level or not, it's all relative. Um, so just decided that, you know, I guess I'm really interested in this and I want to learn more myself, but I also want to be able to offer this resource. And it was again, very much like serendipity that one of the top programs in the country was in Denver. I was already living in Boulder. Um, so I went back to grad school, uh, in 2017 or 18. Um, and got my master's degree in sports psychology and since then have um, done a lot of work uh, with, with athletes on mental training, basically. I was going to ask, do you do anything on the research side as well, or is it mostly business-based, like you're coaching athletes in the sport and in other, uh, other areas? Yeah, so um, my, pra- my practice and my experience is, is entirely like consulting at this point, no research. Um, other than just my own reading and, and like keeping up with various stuff that's being done, but no research that I've done myself. Well, one of the reasons why I'm excited to have this conversation is because, and I've had a couple other coaches on the podcast before, and they're mostly on the X's and O's side of like writing workouts, writing long runs, training blocks. And a lot of them have remarked that their own profession in our sport is pretty new. Like 10 or 15 years ago, there were no coaches. People were doing their own thing, just logging miles. And I wonder if we're at a similar juncture on the mental side of coaching, where currently it's not totally common, like not many athletes maybe have a coach in that area, but it could take off this decade. Do you see it trending that way? Totally. In fact, um, this past uh, Olympic Games was the first time they've taken um, a sports psychologist who who, the person they took actually was one of my um, supervisors and professors in grad school she's amazing um a psychiatrist and someone with um an lcsw which is like licensed social worker it's the first time i've ever the u.s has ever done that um and most olympic teams have some kind of sports psychologist working with them so i definitely at the top level universities and that kind of thing it's becoming more mainstream but what i think is cool and what i hope continues to change or to use your analogy 
I almost feel like until not long ago, coaching kind of seemed to be reserved for the top people. You know, like some people might be like, well, if I'm not going to try to win a race, why would I get a coach? Um, Which is silly because it's all relative again. And now it's much more common for anybody from front to back probably has a coach. And I I feel similarly about um, sports psychology services and, and mental training or mental performance coaching is in the past, I think it's like maybe people think that Olympians work with a sports psychologist, but like, why would I work with someone on that? And it's like, why does someone else have the right to, to know how to use their brain for better than, than you do? So um, I work with a lot of really high level athletes, but I also work with athletes who, you know, are just trying to improve their own relationship with their sport, who aren't professionals, and they aren't doing it for a living. So I, I like seeing that trend and it becoming more like accessible to more people. Do you ever think at all about how you quantify the relationship as a mental coach with an athlete? Because I feel like coaches that are just handling the writing of training plans, like workouts and long runs, they have the benefit of seeing all of that data being uploaded to Strava and training peaks. Is there anything similar on the mental side where you can show the progress that an athlete's made, for example, stuff like that? Um, That's a good question. It's definitely not as maybe objectively measurable. Of course, I, I mean, of course you want to see results improve. That's probably usually what is leading most people to seek that service. But honestly, yeah. when I, what I, what I want for each person is like, I could care, I could care less if they're winning, if, if they want to win, then I want them to be winning, but that's not my yeah. intention. My intention is to help uh, people understand how their brain works and how they can have a healthier relationship with performance. So I measure that in the way that um, it's actually a, a good story is I was just talking to an athlete last week on a session who's a collegiate athlete, collegiate runner, pretty good really solid athlete. Um, we've been working together for probably a year and I can see a change in the way she talks about herself or a way that she talks about a race that just happened. And so I can measure it in that way. Yeah. It's not quantifiable where there's metrics, but I can see like, okay, you've changed your relationship with, um, what you maybe would have considered a failure a year ago. Um, so that's really cool to see. So my intention is like, if someone's racing better or I work with a lot of people who aren't runners, so performing better, awesome. But that's not really like my goal. My goal is usually that will be an, a result or an outcome if you learn how to manage your, your mind better, basically, which is what my goal is. Well, this is the perfect segue. So the book is Mental Training for Ultra Runners. It's fantastic. We'll link to it in the show notes. I just finished reading it. Uh, you mentioned the power and the importance of self-talk. I think we'll talk about that. We'll talk about managing stress response, the science of motivation. Maybe the first question I have for you is, as I said earlier, like putting in the miles, the workouts, the long runs, I think that's common for most runners that people take that part of the process for granted. Is it fair to say that fewer people take the time to practice the mental skills they need for race day? And if so, why do you think that is? It would be tough to, to again, quantify how much time someone is or isn't taking. But I think for the most part is, um, I look at it more about, are you doing this in an intentional way? Um, there's no athlete that's going to come to me probably honestly at any level that doesn't already have some mental skills they've developed, but like they might mm. not know it. And that's definitely how, how I used to be before I was exposed to all this was I thought, yeah, on some days I can perform like a rock star, And on some days I don't. And I guess I'll just see which day I will, which person I woke up as today. Like it wasn't in my control or something. And so I would more say, um, I don't think a lot of athletes are putting that much intention behind the, the mental and, and, um, and emotional side, but definitely just like the psychological side and the psychological preparation. And yeah. I think for some people, it can be daunting to think like, well, I'm already training like 15 or 20 hours a week. Like, where am I going to add this in? But in reality, like you're already doing it. Like if you're training your brain, whether you know you are or not. So it's like in yeah. training in practice, you are, you're already doing something. And if you're not doing it in an intentional way, like let's hope it works out. So it's not necessarily added time so much, so much as it's like, okay, what am I going to focus on this week? Like, what do I want to improve? Whether it's like attentional control or self-talk, like in a hard workout or a long run or whatever it is. Um, you know, you can't, you can't really avoid teaching your brain how to do something. So if we're not taking advantage of like teaching it to do what we want it to do, then that's kind of a shame. That reminds me, I think you mentioned this in the book that our sport is incredibly unique in that most athletes will not come anywhere close physically or mentally to replicating the demands of the race in practice. And so that maybe that's an area where the mental training comes in. And I'm curious what you think the best ways are to, are to prepare for that gap from a mental standpoint. There's a few different ways to tackle it. Um, 
One is to fully, fully believe that you don't have to replicate the race demands beforehand in order to still mm. have the race you want. So that's a big, that's a big, that's like one of the biggest steps. That's the foundation probably is like, you, you don't, I mean, that's, we know that there's not, no one that's winning hundred mile races or 50 mile races is doing that probably before the race, at least not at that level. Um, so that's like a first piece is just believing that that's true, like true. And whether it's true or not, doesn't really matter. You are still choosing to believe in something. So you may as well believe in something that's like serving. Um, but then I think the second piece is, um, we still know, you know, there's research that's been done that shows that putting yourself in situations where you have to deal with discomfort and develop coping skills for dealing with discomfort, for dealing with, um, negative chatter that's going on for dealing with like lack of confidence in a given moment that you can actually do this thing. Um, I don't even know where I was going with that exact sentence, but like learning how to do those things, learning how to tolerate those things Mm. are transferable skills. So what I mean is like, you don't have to run a race at the same distance or do a run at the same distance, the same effort to still gain coping skills that will be um, valuable in that moment. So like what we know from research, which I always like to, to reference when I can is like, they've done research studies where they have people do, um, one of the most famous ones is they have you put your hand in like a bucket of ice and see how long you can hold it there. And people that do things that require tolerating discomfort kept their hand in the bucket for longer. And it's like, no one, no one is training to keep their hand in a bucket of ice. So it just shows you that like, it doesn't have to be the exact same situation or scenario for your brain to still comprehend like how to tolerate discomfort. So Mm. yeah, the first step is believing that you don't need to replicate it. And the second step is believing that just because you're not replicating, it doesn't mean you're not developing uh, mental skills to deal with discomfort that will come into play like in the race setting. So that's why it's still important to do hard long runs to run in conditions that aren't favorable to run when you don't feel like it, um, to do like, that's one reason why I still do, um, like interval workouts sometimes, you know, like I think there's some translation to my racing, but I also just like to stay in touch with like, Oh God, like I really would rather go run 30 miles today than do mile repeats. Like that sounds so hard. So now yeah. I'm going to do that. Cause that sounds really hard. Well, you have a great quote in the book. You say the best athletes don't hurt less. They tolerate the struggle better. And I underlined that as soon as I saw it, that was powerful, but it made me wonder because you, you mentioned coping skills a, a, a moment ago. Are those strengths that these elite athletes have in the sport are do you think that they're genetic or have they trained them over the years it's like that nature versus nurture debate where does that come from that's a good question i mean i i have my own opinions on that i don't know that again i don't know that there's been a ton of research i don't really know how you would even necessarily you can measure personality traits but um and temperament but there's not necessarily like a go-to metric like there is you know, studying VO2 max or lactate thrushing. And there, we kind of have these physio- physiological metrics that would suggest that someone's genetically advantaged. There's not really like, um, uh, like a similar way to measure that in terms of like personality and the way that you think about things. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think it'd be hard to say that there's probably not uh, some people who maybe have a, a temperament or a personality that is more conducive to certain things. And, and I think being exposed to sport at a younger age, maybe like as your brain is developing, if you're already kind of doing these hard things as your brain is developing, then you probably do, you know, maybe, um, build like a different relationship with what pain means from a young age when it becomes more normalized for sure. But I don't think that it's that genetic. And I think that should be, that's like so exciting. I I tell that to athletes all the time. Like the reality is maybe not as much in ultra running, but especially in, and it's in play at ultra running, but you're talking about more traditional distances. Like if we're being honest, a lot of it's genetic potential, like just physiology. Sure. Like a lot of it's also training and preparation and that kind of thing when you're exposed to the sport. But, but on the mental side, it's not really, you know, it's just like how you choose to utilize that resource and either it's working for you or it's working against you. So um, with some of the best athletes, I think what I've seen in them is that the biggest piece I think is, I always talk about associations. Like that's just how our brains make sense of the world. We, we create associations with literal things. That's how we, that's like language. That's how we drive cars, but we also um, develop associations between experiences and like environment and what our Mm. body feels like. And a lot of times people that um, struggle to push themselves hard might have a negative association with what that means. Like, Oh, that hurts. I don't like how that feels. Or if it's hurting, it means I'm not running well or whatever. 
but there's you talk to some of the top athletes and Shalane Flanagan most people probably know who she is I remember her talking one time about how she had to even be careful not to push and seek the pain too early in a race because she in her mind has created this association between pain means I'm crushing it like pain this hurts because I'm running fast so there's like a different association and it's like I'm seeking that because that means a good thing I don't care what it feels like that's like irrelevant it's more about what it means and so yeah starting that at a younger age as she did probably helped develop that that meaning but that's also something anybody can do with intention is it fair to say that the mind is more trainable than the rest of the body like let's say we accept that there are clear physical differences between you know certain categories of athletes do we all have relatively the same reservoir to pull from when it comes to like grit and perseverance and stuff like that i would say so yeah i mean i I'm not like necessarily qualified to answer that question in a way that I feel like super confident because I haven't done the research and I'm not like a neuroscientist or a neuropsychologist, but um, maybe, maybe the better question is not necessarily like, is it more trainable and more is the potential more like, um, like limitless. Yeah, kind of. And like, like not like not necessarily does anybody have a, um, like an advantage over somebody else. Cause I mean, you could say more trainable, but like someone else, someone could train the exact same as Kipchoge or somebody or Courtney DeWalter or Jim Wamsley, but like, they're not going to because they can't. Yeah. But like, how, how can I not like sit and think about my like self-talk as good as anybody else if I'm, you know, using the right tools. So I don't know. I kind of think of it that way. It's just more accessible. I want to talk about the why section of the book for a second. You mentioned that and this was relatively new to me, you mentioned that people often choose what their why is either A, arbitrarily, or B, based on what they think it's expected to be, rather than what personally fulfills them. And I'm curious why you think that is, and then what the consequences are of that. Yeah, I, I, I believe that it can be easy to inherit, inherit like a why in terms of, especially when you're, when you're in a very objective sport, like Mm. running is whether you're on the track on trails or whatever there becomes these like these races that are big key races that like to mean to to mean anything i need to run at this race or um you know i was a collegiate athlete so when you're in a college system like your why is very much told to you kind of right like you're you're existing in a system and you're inheriting what that why is um and that's easy to do and even feel okay about it and maybe it would still be the same if you examined it but what i have noticed is not as many people stop and actually examine like do I just care about this because I'm in a, in a running group that meets on Saturdays and like everybody wants to run a marathon in under four hours or whatever, whatever the thing is like what that's, I guess that's kind of like goals, but it's also like when you don't stop and think about it, you're not as connected to what you're doing. So, um, I don't know. I, I think that should be something that's revisited often. And I think that's something that should be personal to you, even if it does end up being the same as what another person's why might be. It's interesting. And I'm, I'm definitely at fault for this. If I reflect back on a lot of the races that I've chosen and how I train and who I train with and the workouts I do in the long runs, it's a lot of it is based on external motivation rather than internal motivation. And I don't think I've suffered the consequences, at least like consciously yet, but I wonder if I'm shortchanging myself because I'm not coming at it from the other standpoint. And, and external validation is... Um is not bad. You know, I think that there's some kind of this, people can have this misconception that, um, you know, someone being more internally motivated or intrinsically motivated would be someone that is like deeply connected to a why or like why this is important. And the way I think about it is that's more sustainable over the long term. Like that's going to keep you in something for a long time, but the external validation and the extrinsic rewards are also really motivating. And there's also a time and place for them. So it's not like there's, they shouldn't exist. It's just, the foundations should be something more like longstanding and like within your control that you can kind of come back to when maybe the ex extrinsic rewards or external factors like aren't coming the way that you want them to. I think you see that a lot when people start performing not as well as they want to anymore. And then they're just kind of yeah. done or they're going you know, to kind of give up because maybe there's not that foundation to support it. That's a great point. So they don't like rebound as mm-hmm. effectively or like when a race ends, for example, uh, they struggle to bet to bounce back, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you also mentioned that there's like a, ch- a chain of processes to follow. So like even before the why, you have to determine your values. So it goes like values, why, and then goals. And again, I think I've only been thinking about goals my whole running career. Like yeah. I just, I haven't been thinking about those other two. So could you 
explain values first because that's a word when I am like pressed to explain what it means, I, I struggle. So like, <laughs> yeah, like what are values and, and I, go I, from I, there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily to me, it's not even like a definition so much as just like a concept kind of. And when, again, when, just as I was saying earlier, like you're, you're teaching your brain something all the time, something is driving and dictating your behaviors all day long. And most of that's happening at like a subconscious level. Mm. Um, and so values to me is kind of like my intentional blueprint for how I want to live my life. And if you're not thinking about that and you're not kind of saying those things out loud, um, then you don't have like a, maybe a ton of direction. And on the flip side, sometimes I've had conversations with people where maybe they've said like, oh, this is a value of mine. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look back at like the last two or three weeks. Like t let's talk about how, how many times or how you've like gotten in, like committed to that value or shown up for that value. And they're like, um, and I can't really think of anything, right? Because it's this flip side too of if you're not consciously thinking about it and examining your life and like, again, living in an intentional way with the things that are important to you and like how you, I think the way I think of it is like, how do I want to show up in the world? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that has to shows up in my running, but some of it doesn't, but then there's also ways that I can connect with a value through running. Like one of my values is connection with other people and relationships. And I do that by running with people that I care about or being part of the running community. So, um, yeah, values. I also believe there's some people who think values are kind of set in stone and this is like what you've decided. And I mm. disagree. I think that they are always constantly shifting and changing depending on life circumstances, depending on where you're at, which is also why I think they need to be like commonly, um, frequently, um, like revisited and looked at. So, and I guess honestly on the, another component of it is that it helps you realize you're not just a performer, like whatever the performance is, if you're a runner, if you're an athlete, if you're whatever, you know, whatever other sport, whatever other performance domain, your other things. And so for me, I saw a big shift in my relationship with my sport, which ultimately led to much better racing and outcomes when I identified my values and identified like, yeah, some of these have to do with running, but some don't. And in fact, um, I need to, I need to like invest in each of these somewhat equally like maybe there's times of the year when they fluctuate and this is more important or this needs more time but you know over a period of time I hope they're even and so it actually helped me feel less stressed let's say if I was like traveling with my family and like couldn't train for two weeks or had to miss yeah. a race because of a holiday or whatever that would stress me out if yeah. I felt like I wasn't committing to this to, to training or to running or to performance um but now I look at it as like, oh, I'm just like, I'm just depositing in this other cup that's like also really important to me. And you know, there's other times when I'm probably going to miss things because I'm training. But right now it's okay that that's not happening because I'm investing in like this other value that's really important. So it also gives a lot of perspective that takes some pressure off of the need to perform as the top thing that somehow in the crazy way the world works usually leads to people performing better, which is really interesting. It was a really interesting section of the book. I mean, I think it made me want to be more strategic about life. Like I think one of my faults is I'm a very impressionable person. I almost live life moment to moment. And if I come across somebody who's interesting and has an interesting way of doing things, I'm immediately drawn into whatever they're doing. And I put pause in whatever other mode I was in. And it's, it's interesting to think that you should be more strategic about like, I'm going to think about this decision and to see if it's in accordance with, yeah, the things that I hold most deeply and believe in and obviously in a running environment, applying it there. So I don't know. It was just, it's it, just very interesting. And uh, it made me pinpoint a lot of things I have to work on. So um, how do I put this next question? Like if we have like patterns of living and patterns of thinking that aren't serving us to our full potential, it's, it's good to stop them, but you want to replace that behavior as opposed to just like throwing it away and halting it. Uh, why is that? it's more efficient and more effective. And I don't know if I, if I reference any of this in the book, but actually a lot of the research I did on this topic had to do with like addiction actually. And like people okay. that had, you know, like pretty bad, bad habits that it's, it's really hard to just stop something that was taking a lot of brain power or um, like mental resources. And it's almost going to take more energy to try and like resist doing that thing than it would be to use that as the urge to do that thing as a cue to do something different. Um, it, it, it's just easier to like, it's like rerouting traffic, I guess, instead of like trying to turn everybody around, you know, That's it's, a good analogy. um, you know, it's, it's like, 
the thought about it's not thoughts that are the problem it's our behaviors based on certain thoughts and so it's almost like recognizing that you can have a thought that has no business as part of your decision making and that thought can then be like a cue of like okay that means it's time for me to do this because i'm thinking about that um and then eventually that new that it's like yeah it's i sometimes i think about um I don't know, like trails sometimes get just really bogged down with like mud and snow. And it's like this, this one part is like so gross. People don't want to go through it. This is actually really bad that this happens. This is maybe a, an irresponsible analogy, but it's like, so people take the clean way around and then eventually that just becomes the way that's no longer like the shortcut. It's just like the new way. And I think about it similarly with the brain of like, you know, eventually this new reroute becomes just the way th- the way that your brain works and it becomes like the instinct and the habit and then the old habit does eventually go away but it's just more effective and more efficient to do it that way than to try and just like stop doing something which is really hard that's a great analogy and it makes me think are there any common behaviors like in the athletes that you work with in the running world in particular are there any behaviors that you're trying to uh stop and rework in more productive areas like you're you're, you're trading one unproductive behavior for something productive and more sustainable. Totally. Yeah. A lot, probably a lot. Um, I mean, I think one of the ones that comes to mind in this specific context that just seems like pretty tangible is that, um, a lot of people, myself included, get maybe pretty bad performance anxiety or get really mm. nervous, like right before a big competition, make it this really big, huge thing or constantly worrying about like all the things that can go wrong. And so I just had actually a session with an athlete last week where we literally did this. Um, so her, her homework or prescription of whenever this was happening was, okay, anytime you're having those thoughts about all the things that could go wrong, first of all, what I try to tell people is, this is kind of a, a sidebar, but I think it's important, is I don't believe our brains are ever trying to sabotage us. I think that they are, it's trying to protect us most of the time. Okay. And when you can see the intention, then you can see what the need is. And so you can look at your brain going through all the worst case scenarios. And instead of looking at it as like, oh, God, clearly I'm not confident because I'm sitting here thinking about everything that could go wrong. Like, this is not good. Or you could think about it as, cool, my brain's just planning. It's just it's just like preparing for the things that might pop up. And so the homework for her was whenever that's happening, pull out a sheet of paper, a notebook, whatever's around you, write down what the concern is and then write down how you like some kind of action plan. Okay, let's say that did happen or let's say that did pop up, have some kind of action associated with it, because then that kind of teaches her brain to take that next step of like, it's not now it's not worrying, it's planning. Um, And if there's no action that can be taken, then it should just let that like thought kind of float away. Um, So that's the one that came like to mind most that seemed most relevant or maybe most like tangible or easy to understand. I do want to talk about the fatigue section of the book too. I think you cite some really interesting research from Tim Noakes back in the day that says there's a lot of aspects of fatigue that are quote illusory, illusory, I-L-L-U-S-O-R. Sorry, I can never pronounce that word. And and we can actually influence and control that perceived fatigue. It's actually not the pain that causes issues for most people. It's their valuation of it. And that's to me, that's fascinating. I had never thought of it in those terms. Can you explain that research a little more? Totally. And what I like about quoting um, Noakes is that he's not a psychologist. Um, his research was not done from a, um, I mean, there's mental mental components or psychological components, but what his, he was looking at um, like literal physiological markers, like lactate, like muscle fiber. Um, gosh, I would have to like, I can't remember the, exactly what he was looking at, but it was literally like taking measurements in the body to see what kind of physical capacity athletes had left in them once they said they were like done um, physically. I just ran that as hard as I could. And they were taking, you know, taking literal measurements, um, blood samples, whatever to say like, well, not really, actually, you weren't that close. Um, so that shows you right there that a lot of the limiting factor is the brain and it's important to recognize that's your survival mechanism. So mm. he, he kind of called it the central governor theory is basically that there's like a governor that your brain imposes on your body of like, I think about it like a car, like the first car I ever had had a governor at 90 miles per hour, which I never would have driven that fast anyway, but you couldn't go over it. Doesn't mean the car couldn't drive faster than that. It could, but it had something like limiting it. And the brain is similar because um, when we think about, and I love saying this because it's so true is that we don't have the ability to run fast and far distances 
to run races. We have the ability because that's was a survival skill. Mm. And so of course our brain is going to be like, hold on a second. Like I'm, I'm surveying our, our landscape and our environment. There's no threat present. Like, what are you doing? What if there is a threat present and you just exhausted all your physical resources? So it like shuts you down. But the, but the really cool thing is, is the more that you put yourself in those situations and kind of ignore what fatigue and pain means, you essentially like can push the needle on the governor further and further because your brain has examples of like reference points of experiences where like, oh, I did that. We push a little bit farther, a little bit harder and like nothing bad happened. It's fine. Um, so you can kind of shift that in that direction. So yeah, it's when you can understand that, that's something I actually, that's one of my like mantras in racing is when I start to hurt really bad, I'll start telling myself that I'm like, it's superficial. Yeah. It's just superficial. Like it's just a warning light. Nothing's actually wrong yet you're, st- you're fine. Like your brain is just sending off warning lights. doesn't mean anything. And when you can, can like actually believe that and buy into that, it really doesn't bother you as much. It kind of just becomes like an alarm going off, but it doesn't mean anything. How about this quote that motivation is an action and not a feeling? Uh, explain that a little bit more. That was another thing that caught my eye in the book. Yeah. I think a lot of people think about motivation as a feeling, right? Like I don't feel motivated. Um, I don't know why this stuck out to me, but I think I really started thinking about this concept in college when my coach said something to me, like, I was like, not feeling it one day. I was like, I don't want to do this workout. It sounds really hard. I just don't dig it. I don't want to do it. And he said something like, okay, you're doing it. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. And he said something like, if, if you think that every like high level or high achieving athlete, like actually feels like super stoked to be out here all the time doing this thing they don't like they're, they're just, they're either hiding it or they're lying or whatever that they're coping with it the way they need to. That's not like a requirement. And so I like loved that idea because it took the pressure off. I was like, cool. So I, that means I can be in whatever kind of mood I want to be in and I'll still do it. I'll still get like the job done, but I don't have to be here and be super positive and happy as long as I'm still like willing to do the thing. Obviously that shouldn't be the case the most, like most of the time, like ideally you want to feel motivated and feel now I'm like contradicting myself. You want to feel like stoked about stuff most of the time. But to me, it was really freeing to think about being motivated as more of an action and, and think like, I can really not want to do this and still do it. It doesn't matter how I feel. And so then you're almost not basing a, lo- a, a really common human behavior is to base actions and decision making and behaviors off of feelings rather than doing like engaging in behaviors and actions that lead to a certain feeling. And so what I know for myself is, I mean, I'm going to feel better once I do, do what I did. And so I would, I'll prioritize like doing that. Mm. knowing I'm going to feel great afterwards than making any kind of decision based on how I'm feeling right now, which is maybe tired and grumpy. and like, I don't want to do it. Um, so I don't know. I think of it as an action and I think of being motivated um, to, to accomplish some kind of goal or move towards something means um, not pacing so much in how you're, how you're feeling or what you're thinking at the time. With your athletes, where do you draw the line? Um, like if they'll tell you, hey, I've been feeling like it's been tough to get out the door all week or it's been a couple days, where do you tell them, you know, maybe it's time to pause and, and self-reflect on like the activity in the sport as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I don't have like a hard and fast line of time, but if it's consistently like every day and like that's that becomes a sign of burnout and and there's other factors too so maybe it wouldn't be just that that one thing in isolation of i'm not feeling motivated there's usually other things that are also present um that would indicate something more like either burnout or very close to burnout um overtraining it's a very common um symptom of overtraining so i would probably ask more questions to get like a bigger picture but yeah if someone's feeling like they don't want to get out the door i would even say if you're feeling that like almost every day for more than a week or so, like probably take some time off, even if it's just a few days. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I rarely will feel like that more than one day in a row, unless the weather's really bad or something. So I think this next part here is about deliberate practice. And I think a lot of folks are familiar with like the laws of specificity when it comes to, you know, running on terrain that's specific to the event and doing certain types of workouts and long runs and total time on feet. But can you explain how deliberate practice might apply to mental training? Because you have this great quote again. It's like, it's not whether you practice, it's how you practice. So I'm curious what your thoughts are there. Like you said, it's so easy to see something like that at play in, in um, like literal training or physical training. Mm. It, I would compare it to like, if someone has, I don't know, a 12 mile long run on their schedule, 
they know there's a big difference between going out and running a 12 mile run at like a certain perceived effort for whatever their coach wanted or whatever they're training for or whatever and going out and just like I'll like walk a little bit and like run a little bit um I'll just get the 12 miles done like I'll do the 12 miles like, there's a difference like that's very easy to see the difference between the two mm. and it's not as easy to see the difference mentally and psychologically and I honestly what what I'll use myself as an example is I started doing headspace every morning I was like I'm gonna really commit to doing like 10 to 15 minutes of meditation in the mornings and so I would sit and do it and I would press play and I would let the thing run and I would sit still but I was usually like stretching and I would like sip my coffee a little bit while I was doing it and like that's not deliberate practice. Like I was doing it and I was sitting in the time that I dedicated to it. And I was like kind of doing it, but there's no, no wonder it wasn't really working as I wasn't being like super deliberate about it. Yeah. Um, I get, yeah, that's probably a good example, but then I could even say, I think it's really helpful to kind of take this, these concepts into training. And so to make a lot of times I'll have an athlete, like for the next two weeks, we're working on this. Mm. So I want you to think about this concept and practice, like we're working on attention. So here's what I want you focusing on, like really focusing on maybe one skill at a time in a really intentional way. Yeah, I think you mentioned this earlier that you've had some of your athletes do exercises where they stop when they think of something and they write it down. And, and that's self-awareness, like that's real thinking when you're actually putting pen to paper and working through those thoughts. So is that another example of deliberate practice where it's not enough to just like work through it in your mind, but actually like to, to write it down and to work through thoughts and feelings that way? I think so. To me, it makes things more real when I write it down. It's also, um, it, I don't know, it's this really cool way too of almost like taking it out of my brain and just making it something I can like work on and figure out instead of this thing that I feel like is happening to me. It almost makes it less personal when I can like work things out on paper. But yeah, I think that's that is a, a good example um, is kind of turning, turning these maybe abstract ideas and concepts into like a tangible exercise on paper. Mm. Um, tends to be more effective and kind of stick stick longer. I want to talk about vulnerability now. You make a really powerful statement in the book. You say that we tend to respect and admire vulnerability in others, but we hesitate to practice it in our own lives. And again, that was another thing that I underlined and hit me hard. I'm curious why you think that is. Why I believe that or why I think people are more hesitant to be vulnerable themselves? The latter. I don't know. I think it's scary to be vulnerable. I mean, in in some ways we're taught not to be in mm. some ways that probably also is a survival instinct of, you know, not showing any kind of weaknesses to potential. Um, in fact, this is, this is something that's kind of powerful to understand is a lot of it probably comes down to caring what people think about you, caring what others might think about you, or if that might change some kind of perception, if you are vulnerable with something or whatever. Mm. Um, but that is a survival skill and people don't really realize that, you know, at one point we existed in kind of like tribes that relied on each other to survive and you needed people to like you, like you needed to want people to want you to be part of that tribe. Otherwise you're outcast on your own and you're probably going to die. Yeah. Um, that's real. So it's, there's a lot of undoing of that. Like that's not something that was developed for no reason. You know, dogs don't care. My dog is, I can tell he doesn't care what other dogs think about him by the way he acts in the dog park. So it's like, that's not just like a, I don't know, a living being instinct to, to have those thoughts. So that's one thing to understand. And I, when I, and I always bring that up because it makes me feel less responsible for my, my like shortcomings of like, oh, well, I developed this as, as a survival skill and that's not a, as an excuse to not work on it, but it's not like something's messed up or broken. In fact, it's probably working the way that it was designed to. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 I think that's a good question. I wish that's probably like a million dollar question is, is why are people afraid to be vulnerable? But I think a lot of it does have to do with um, maybe concerned about what, what others might think or concerned about something being seen as like a weakness or something. But a lot of times when we like care about something or something feels important or threatening, mm. it's maybe because there's a fear that we have about ourselves. And so sometimes I think there's a, a vulnerable, unwillingness to be vulnerable might come from like fear of maybe whatever we're worried about actually being true. Yeah. Um, whatever concern we have actually being the truth. So I think that's one reason why people maybe um, are, are more reluctant to be vulnerable. Well, given you mentioned that it's so deeply a part of our programming to be self-conscious about that kind of stuff and to hesitate to, I'll say, have a vulnerability practice in our lives, are there any strategies that you recommend to your athletes to work through those hesitations and to 
to be more open to the world? I don't know that I've worked a ton on this specific concept, mm. but I, I would say I have recently with one particular um, client that I was working with and kind of a conversation that we had was, I would think of it more as going back to values and like your why, how do you want to show up and how do you want to exist? First question. Second part is an unwillingness to be vulnerable standing in the way of that. Mm. Probably. I would say probably for most people, if, if, and maybe not from everybody, but maybe for some, okay, if that's the case, then, then why, like, why are you afraid to be vulnerable or what is it that's like the fear? So I don't know. I think one of the biggest things that get down to the core of like, what is the actual fear? Like the symptom is maybe lack, uh, lack of vulnerability or unwillingness to take chances, but it's probably coming down to some kind of like core fear. And when you can come to that, what it usually stems from or comes down to, I would say, is making assumptions, either making assumptions about how something's going to play out, making assumptions about what other people might think or how someone might react. Mm. And that's what all of that is, is an assumption. So it's like, if you're going to make assumptions, which we all do and have to, and will do forever, why don't you have, why don't you just assume it's going to work out great? You're, you're assuming either way, either way, you yeah. have no idea like what reality is going to be tomorrow. So if you're going to assume, why don't you assume the thing that sets you up to live the life that you want? You know, why don't you go around assuming everyone's going to think you're like freaking awesome for doing that thing? Or why don't you assume that you're going to succeed and not fail? You know, we're, all, we're making assumptions anyway. So why not assume what you want it to be? Yeah. This is a question that I ask a lot of guests, but I'll ask it from a mental health slash vulnerability standpoint. You mentioned that vulnerability is tough when you have so much of your identity and self-worth tied up in what you do. Do you think that that's a particular challenge for a lot of athletes in our sport? Like they hesitate to go all in and, and be full-time athletes, not just because of the financial side of it, but because uh, you're really putting yourself on a platform where what you do day in and day out is exclusively this. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think athletic identity, that's probably the most common, maybe they don't know that's why they're coming to me, but most athletes I work with, that's probably one of the, at least high level athletes. That's probably one of the biggest challenges is, um, yeah, when you're putting in committee and I don't know why sports are that way, right? Like you think yeah. about people that work 40 hours a week doing something they don't like fully identify some do. <laughs> and that might be like a challenge in like a performance setting, but most people I know don't. So why do we like, so over identify with this role? Um, I don't know. I guess all I can say is yes, that's definitely a challenge. And I don't like have like a, a one way to necessarily fix that. But for me, it's, it's, I've seen massive results in my happiness and massive results in my performances to detach from that a little bit, because that's a lot at stake. You know, if you are fully identified with this one thing and then you have a very strict, which most do a very strict um, rubric for what succeeding at that thing is, yeah. that is a lot at stake. That is a heck of a lot of, um, worth and like, um, meaning purpose that you're putting into literally one aspect of yourself. Well, I think you mentioned it in the book, like running is so objective and you're truly throwing yourself out there on an Island. There's nobody that you can hide behind. No group you can hide behind. You can't be in the shadows. Like you're out there, you're putting yourself out there and it's different from team sports, like all of the blame or the credit falls on you and you alone. So maybe that has something to do with it too. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you have to be um, inherently pretty vulnerable to be a runner. You're right. Cause there's like, there's nowhere to hide. Maybe this is another good place to talk about self-talk, which we mentioned earlier in the uh, conversation. You mentioned in the book that confidence and how you talk about yourself are intimately related. The brain simply believes what you tell it most and what you tell it about yourself it will create again that was incredibly powerful when i read it so can you talk about how confidence is malleable and how self-talk has an impact on our performance in races and training it's all about how you talk to yourself right like no there's no um, bigger influence on how you feel about yourself than yourself so I don't know. I think that it's easy to think that confidence comes from like other things and it, that can help sometimes. I think there's certainly like factors, there's factors that harm confidence, but there's factors that make people feel confident. But the majority of it is just how, how are you, how are you talking to yourself? How are you making yourself feel about yourself? Um, and that's something that's exciting because that's super controllable. Mm. Um, 
second part of the question? I think I like was thinking about my answer before. Well, you just say that confidence is so malleable and I'm wondering oh, yeah. when you start a practice of noticing your thoughts each day and how you're describing yourself and your performance and stuff like that, when you decide maybe one day or in one moment to change that trajectory and maybe not to be as self-deprecating or negative, like how soon are you realizing the benefits? Are they immediate or is it like a long-term process? I think the benefits are probably pretty immediate. I obviously long-term practice is going to make that again, like as we were talking about earlier, more the habit or more the instinct, then yeah. it's less about having to be intentional or trying to talk nicely to yourself. It's just like, that's just what you do. I don't know if I share this in the book, but there's a, this really like powerful um, exercise we do with usually like teams or groups if we're doing some kind of group um, session where you have people kind of write down some of their most common negative self-talk and like how they talk to themselves. And then you pair them up and have them like say that to a teammate. And most of the time they're like, I'm not saying that to them. That's horrible. We're like, well, then why would you say that to yourself? You know, if you would not ever say this to another person, why is that how you talk to yourself? Um, But at the end of the day, the biggest criteria for me is like, is something serving you? Is Mm. this the way that you're doing this helping you be more capable of what you want to do? That's all there is to it. And talking to yourself in a negative way just doesn't. So, um, yeah, I think that we're all probably um, guilty of, of having challenges with that. I definitely still struggle with that. But again, it's it's once you become self-aware and kind of build that self-awareness, you can recognize when like, wow, I'm really not being very kind right now. And this isn't helpful. Um, I can kind of at least flip the switch or, or try and change the dialogue. Last question on the self-talk front, um, because I thought that this phrase was interesting. What is a quote, heroic alter ego? And what are the benefits of creating one? A heroic alter ego? Um, yeah, that's a it's a concept um, that, that you do maybe even unknowingly see in like professional sports a lot where athletes will kind of have um, maybe these like performance names when they're um, an athlete on the court or on the field. Um, or even like their persona or personality is like, di- maybe different than it would be in normal life. I think one of the benefits of it is that it, it, it maybe, maybe for some people it could almost feel like a stretch or like a challenge to, um, I don't know, like to, to make the jump to believe certain things about themselves, maybe like every single day all the time. But mm. if you can create this like way that you want to be and way that you want to feel about yourself and confidence that you want to have in a performance setting, it, it, I think it can be, it can feel a little bit more like reachable or um, not as much of a jump, you know, it's like when I'm in this setting, I'm focused like this, or when I'm in this setting, I'm, um, aggressive or confident or mm. relaxed, like whatever it is. Um, I don't know. Mm. It, it just can seem a little more tangible than maybe having to, um, I don't know, change your entire personality, or maybe that's not your personality day to day, or maybe not something that serves you day to day, but that's like, um, a perspective or a temperament that serves you in the performance setting. So I, I think it can be a good exercise to kind of think about is like, what are some of your strengths and like, what would that kind of look like as, um, supercharged, you know, if you were going to like supercharge that to some kind of like alter ego, which is still a version of yourself, but what does that version look like, um, in the performance setting? It's like when Kobe Bryant becomes the black Mamba. Yeah, exactly. So it's like permission to allow yourself to enter into another state, like this, Mm -hmm. like idealized state of like productivity or pushing through barriers, stuff like that. Yeah. That's cool. I might have to create one of these. I, I'm racing <laughs> Canyon's 100K in two weeks, so nice. maybe I got to work on an alter ego here. This is cool. Yeah. Um, well, Addie, I, I really appreciate the conversation. For anybody that has not had a chance to check out the book, it's excellent. I appreciate you letting me rattle off every burning question I had about all the different sections. There's a lot more there. I Trust me, we could have gone on. But I do want to finish with a couple lightning round questions. The first being, what is something you used to believe strongly about running or some other area of life that you have recently changed your mind about and why? That one, I would say that it has to be all consuming for me to be successful. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't believe that. And maybe like a tangent off of that is um, I was told at a young age from my first coach, who was also my father, (laughs) that it's lonely at the top. And so I was willing for any profession to kind of isolate and work really, really hard in a lot of different areas of my life. And I 
Now I do not believe that. I believe it's not lonely at the top if you're doing it right. Mm. That could be a whole nother podcast. So that's a great answer. <laughs> what is your racing calendar look like this year? It's pretty quiet until the end of the year. Um, I had kind of a setback um, earlier in the year, but I'm doing the big race of the year will be Leadbo 100, um, which I'm stoked about. It's my first 100 in 2018, so I'm really excited to go back. Um, so I'll do that and I'll do Speed Goat. Cool. Last question we always ask guests if you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Yeah, this one's easy. This is like my personal life mantra um, is hold it lightly. So to me, that means it's kind of actually comes from like a Buddhist concept. But to me, it means, yeah, hold things lightly. You know, it's definitely you can still like strive for something. You can still really want something. You can still um, desire like certain outcomes or certain situations or scenarios. But you don't have to hold it so rigidly that you think um, everything's over if it doesn't happen. You know, you don't have to grasp things so hard that it's like almost suffocating or all consuming to, to go back to the first question. So yeah, hold it lightly. Well, again, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for dropping all that knowledge in this conversation. We will be sure to plug your social profiles in the book. And I think your coaching business as well in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with before we go? No, no, this was great. Yeah. I hope it's helpful. And I, I hope people get the book honestly, because I think it's really helpful and, um, hopefully we'll, we'll shed some light on some areas to work on. Cool. Well, I'm really excited to see how this area of training in our sport develops this decade and appreciate you being at the forefront of it. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. In the same way that running coaches became mainstream in our sport back in the 2010s, I do think mental coaching will go mainstream in a similar way this decade, the 2020s. And as I said at the end of the conversation, I am grateful that Addie is at the forefront of it all and that she wrote this book for us to start thinking critically about how we can improve as athletes from that standpoint. As promised, the links to the books and her coaching business are included in the show notes if you want to read it or get in touch with her. Yeah. Thanks as always for listening. If this is your first time tuning into the show, I just have a few asks. Please hit that subscribe button in your podcast player and leave a rating and review as well. It helps more trail runners discover the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson. Peace.